Okay, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you. Uh, well, at the moment, it's um, actually Saturday, May 8th, but this is going to be a, um, a special episode of the Counter Vortex podcast, because rather than me, your host, Bill Weinberg, um, interviewing somebody, I am actually going to be interviewed. What you're actually going to hear is an interview with me that was recorded two days ago, that is to say May 6th, by um, Kimberly Springer, who was the curator of the Oral History Archives at Columbia University here in New York City. And uh, let me just give a little bit of background as to how I came to be interviewed by uh, by Kimberly Springer. Uh in which, you know, I talk about basically my entire um, life's work and uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, my, from my early radicalization as a youth to my uh, current projects that I'm working on today um, for two hours. So uh, it's going to be a long, strange trip. Um, two things that probably listeners know about me. One is that um, before I started podcasting, like everybody else and his uncle, I actually did radio radio, that is to say real radio. I was the uh, producer of a, uh, a radio show on WBAI here in New York City, a flagship um, station of the Pacifica Radio Network, nonprofit radio, um, listener-supported, non-commercial Pacifica Network. Um, but the show was called The Moorish Orthodox Radio Crusade. I know it's a bit of a mouthful. It sounds very esoteric, but you're going to hear the whole story as to how it got that name if you haven't already heard it. Um, and you're also going to hear the um, circumstances under which I was ironically purged from Free Speech Radio WBAI for telling the truth <laughs> just about exactly 10 years ago. Um, another thing that uh, these two things are going to come together in the story here. Another thing that people may know about me is that I work with a, uh, an institution here on the Lower East Side of New York City, Lower East Side of Manhattan Island, called the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space, which is a, a little museum in a, a storefront, actually in the, the ground floor of a squat, C-Squat, at 155 Avenue C, uh, a museum dedicated to the squatter movement, you know, documenting the squatter movement and the community gardening movement and the, and the urban homesteading movement. Here on um, here on the Lower East Side, um, and I actually do a uh, a walking tour every Saturday and Sunday at 3 p.m. I do a walking tour of um, of the neighborhood and tell you know the whole history of um, the squatting movement and the community gardens and uh, the riots and uprisings in the neighborhood going all the way back to the 1800s. Um, <clears throat> Every Saturday and Sunday, 3 p.m. at the um, Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space, 155 Avenue C. It takes around 90 minutes. We walk around the neighborhood, and you can hear me um, doing my uh, historical shtick. Uh, by the way, it costs around uh, cost twenty dollars a head, so about as a little bit more than you would spend for a movie. And a few months ago. When I was doing my tour one um, Saturday afternoon, Kimberly Springer showed up and uh, and took the tour. And when I found out that she was the uh, curator of the oral history archives at Columbia University, um, I uh, told her that I used to produce radio on WBAI for 20 years. 
and that I had 20 years of cassette tapes sitting around in my apartment that I would love to, uh, you know, actually get digitized and online and uh, preserved for posterity before they deteriorate into dust and all of that, uh, you know, programming I did is just lost for forever. So um, she actually uh, agreed to take a, uh, not the, uh, you know, the full, uh, uh, you know, several hundred <laughs> um, cassette tapes, but a selection of about, um, about 50 programs I gave her, which indeed um, are going to be in the oral history archives at Columbia and are going to be um, digitized and, and put online. And along with, um, along with all of those episodes, there's going to be um, an interview with me sort of explaining the background of, uh, you know, who I am and, and my work and, uh, and how I uh, came to be involved in radio and WBAI and, and what, the, what the orientation of the, of the program was, etc. So uh, th that's the interview that, um, that Kimberly uh, conducted with me two nights ago. And uh, you're going to uh, get a sneak preview of it or a, a sneak um, airing of it, since it's audio, not video. <laughs> uh, tonight, you're going to hear it right now on the, um, on the Counter Vortex podcast. So um, forthwith, yours truly, Bill Weinberg, being interviewed by Kimberly Springer of the Oral History Archives at Columbia University. This is Kimberly Springer for the Oral History Archives at Columbia, recording an oral history interview with Bill Weinberg on May 6, 2021, over Zoom. So, Bill, can you please state your full name and your year of birth and where you were born? Uh, my full name is Bill Weinberg, not to get too formalistic about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, March 19th, 1962, New York City. Okay, and where are you zooming in from today? Uh, well, that in itself is an interesting question. Today, most people would call it no-ho, but I uh, consider it to be a part of the greater Lower East Side. Okay, great. And tell me about your childhood. You said you grew up in New York? I did. I grew up in Jackson Heights out in Queens. Oh, great. Okay. What was that like for you? Uh, what was it like for me? Well, um, Jackson Heights was then, as it is today, intensely multicultural. It's more multicultural today than it was then, but even then, it was very, very multicultural. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I had friends from, uh, you know, all over the world. I had Japanese friends and Colombian friends and uh, et cetera. Uh, and I, uh, it definitely gave me um, a sense of um, cosmopolitanism, shall we say. I think it broadened my horizons growing up in Jackson Heights. Mm, okay. And so tell me about your family, um, like brothers and sisters, uh, parents, occupations, that kind of thing. Uh, well, I'm the, uh, the product of a mixed marriage, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> very... Um, Common New York combination, Jewish and Italian. Jewish on my dad's <laughs> side, obviously. Italian on my mom's side. Uh, both my parents are uh, educators. My mom was a uh, school teacher, including a, um, a substitute teacher at the elementary school that I went to, PS69, out in Jackson Heights. Mm -hmm. And uh, my dad is a, a law professor. He, uh, he worked for many years at St. John's University. 
And before that, he was actually uh, in the uh, state attorney general's office, the uh, environment, the assistant attorney general for environmental <clears throat> affairs. Okay. And do you have siblings? I do. I have one brother. We shared a room for 18 years. Wow. <laughs> and it came out like day and night. So go figure. I'm a, um, a struggling writer and a, um, and, a, and a radical lefty, and uh, he's a successful capitalist. Interesting. So can you tell me about, for your parents, like what values that you got from them or were there values that they held that you reacted to? Uh, well, I, you know, my, my parents brought me up with basic progressive values, I would say, you know, like, like I said, my dad was kind of a, uh, you know, a big wig in environmental politics in, um, in New York state. Uh, <clears throat> I think uh, in some ways I probably took the values that they brought me up with more seriously than they would have liked me to. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> <clears throat> Uh, well, you know, cause I mean, we went through, um, a few years of, um, of struggle there when I, you know, uh, came of age and started really becoming a, um, a political radical as opposed to, you know, a, pursuing my career like a good boy. <laughs> mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, you know, I mean, I, when I was out there, um, running around the country, uh, you know, getting into trouble, blockading nuclear power plants and protesting political conventions and so on. Uh, when I was a young man, you know, my parents were worried about me. Okay. Interesting. We'll come back to some of that. Okay. Um, so how was, so you said you went to PS 69 that was at elementary school. And yes, then um, what about like middle school and high school? Uh, <clears throat> middle school. Well, uh, I kind of wish that I had gone to, um, to IS-145 for middle school, which is actually um, named after Joseph Pulitzer. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, it had a reputation as a quote unquote rough school. And uh, my parents made the decision to send me to a private school for, um, for, for those three years. And I, I hated it. <laughs> hmm. What did you hate about it? What did I hate about it? I hated the fact that, uh, you know, it was uh, uh, cut off from the real world and, uh, you know, kind of uh, snooty. Mm. <clears throat> In any event, uh, I uh, sort of insisted on going back into the public school system for high school and I wound up at uh, Newtown High, uh, which I also hated, I should say, but um, for different reasons. Okay, you're gonna say that. So why, did, why didn't you like that school? Well, what I did like about it is, you know, once again, I felt like I was back in the real world. Uh -huh. and, uh, and again, it was intensely multicultural. You know, I had friends from all over the world. Uh -huh. um, but, uh, you know, at that time, I'd like to think this has changed a little bit in Jackson Heights. Uh, well, that, that, technically the school's in Elmhurst, single schools serving both neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, there was a certain sense of, uh, here, this is, this is a strange thing, you know, there was a certain sense of provincialism and even all, all the different ethnic groups they court sort of kept to themselves and didn't really interact a lot with each other. 
And I eventually, by my senior year, when I was starting to get radicalized, I found myself in a, um, in a, uh, a small circle of, um, you know, outcasts from the various cliques. We were like the really hardcore, you know, punk rockers and hippies and, and political radicals at the school. It took us until senior year to find each other. And we could mm -hmm. sort of formed our own clique, I guess. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, the interesting thing is that, you know, back then I kind of felt like, uh, you know, Jackson Heights and Elmhurst were very, um, were very closed and provincial, even though, you know, it was intensely multicultural. And I was kind of like, you know, hungering for a scene. And that's, mm -hmm. what, that's what drew me, you know, into, um, in the, into the Lower East Side. I would, uh, you know, take the, um, take the F train uh, from Jackson Heights out to, um, out to the Lower East Side. And I would go to uh, punk rock shows at CBGB and, and whatnot. Mm. I felt like, okay, here, this, this is like a scene. Now it's like really happening. All right, now it's how many years later? I don't even want to think how many years later. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, 45 years later or something. And now, you know, my, I live here in the greater Lower East Side and my own neighborhood, particularly the NoHo area has been, uh, you know, completely gentrified. And it's, it's, it's almost like corporate suburbia where you've got Kmart and, um, and 7-Eleven. And uh, it feels completely, um, you know, whitewashed and <clears throat> even, provincial and when i want a fix of you know authentic culture i get on the f train in the opposite direction and go back out to jackson heights ah. which, which, where there's actually you know there's like a real kind of like a thriving scene there now you know it's like the uh, the center of um of latin bohemia in the city and particularly gay latin bohemia in the city there's uh -huh. a you know, the, the, the the queen's um pride march is in jackson heights and uh -huh. uh, there's all these, uh, you go down, Roosevelt Avenue is, is the Latino drag and 74th Street is the Indo-Pakistani drag. And, uh, you know, they, they, they meet at that corner there. <clears throat> and if you go down 74th Street, not only have you got, you know, the best Indian food in the city by far, but mm -hmm. uh, you, you've got all these um, locally mixed Bangra beats coming out of every storefront. And it's just, uh, it's just happening. There's just such a sense of vibrancy there. So, hmm. uh, which, which there no longer is here on the Lower East Side. So it's a very ironic uh, trajectory. <clears throat> right. So just for the sake of the transcript, and I think I learned this on your tour, NOHO stands for North of Houston? That is correct. NOHO stands for North of Houston. I could get okay. in, I could give you the whole rap about the nomenclature of the Lower East Side. I don't know if you want to do that now. But, well, uh, we might come back to that. If okay, we we'll come back to that. Yes. Otherwise, it'll be a, a teaser for doing right, the tour. Okay. <laughs> just, just briefly, I consider NoHo to be a um, a uh, a subset of the Greater Lower East Side. Okay, and uh, when I moved in here thirty years ago or more, uh, it wasn't called NoHo; it was called the Bowery. So NoHo mm. is, 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 the, is the, the new gentrified name that uh, it took on in the 1990s when it ceased to be the Bowery because, you know, that, that, sounded, that sounded low class and dangerous. So they had to give it a new name and it became NoHo. But I consider it all from uh, 14th Street in the north to, um, to Henry Street in the south and from the East River to, uh, to Broadway, I consider it all to be the Lower East Side. 
Okay, okay. So uh, going back in time, you talk about sure. uh, becoming radicalized. Yeah. Can you talk about that process? Like were there people you were meeting or things you were reading or was there a particular event that you feel like sort of kicked off your radicalization? 1980 was the big turning point for me. 1980 hmm. was the year that I graduated from high school. It was the beginning of uh, the big lurch to the right in American politics. There was mm -hmm. the Iran hostage crisis, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and, uh, and, and the election of Ronald Reagan, in, mm -hmm. very much in response to the Iran hostage crisis. And one of the last things that, um, that Jimmy Carter did it's very ironic when he came to uh, when he when he came to office back in uh, back in '76. One of the first things that he did was he declared a um, an amnesty for Vietnam era draft resistors mm -hmm. uh, and draft dodgers. One of the last things he did before leaving office, capitulating to the uh, the new you know right wing atmosphere, is he instated draft registration, not the actual draft. But registration. When you turned eighteen, you had to go down to the post office and and sign uh, up. So the Selective Service would have your would have you in their records in case there was a draft. So right. um, I was in the uh, the first crop of eighteen year olds uh, who had who had to register for the draft post Vietnam, and uh, this got me uh, politicized very very quickly. Um, <clears throat> and uh, let's see. I um, somehow got in contact with an anti-draft organization uh, uh -huh. based in Manhattan, New York Coalition Against Registration and the Draft. I think one of my um, one of my uh, few you know friends who were going through the same process of radicalization at Newtown established contact with them, mm -hmm. and I and I got involved with them. Still, my senior year of high school. Through another connection, interestingly enough, I got involved in the Rock Against Racism movement. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're probably aware that uh, you know this movement originally took off in um, in, in in Britain, in, yeah. uh, in, in this period in response to uh, you know famously uh, <clears throat> Eric Clapton got on stage drunk at a concert. I believe it was in Birmingham or was it Manchester? One or the other. And went on this, um, you know, this this anti-immigrant, you know, xenophobic rant, <clears throat> and uh, there was in response to this, and you know, kind of this Nazi chic mentality, which was prevailing among certain rock stars at that time. Uh, the the Rock Against Racism movement began organizing, and you know, they, they were lining up, you know, these new young idealistic punk rock bands to um, you know repudiate this. Uh, this growing racist and xenophobic element in, uh, you know, the white rock scene in England. So uh, mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, one of my punk rock friends uh, brought me back. Uh, he, he had gone to see um, some punk band playing at CBGB and he had met the guitarist from Cheap Trick in the mm -hmm. audience and got his um, got his uh, his autograph and showed me, look, I got the autograph of the guitarist from Cheap Trick. I wasn't very impressed with that. I was more impressed on the um, on the on the paper that the autograph was written on, which was a leaflet for the founding conference of the Rock Against Racism movement in America. So, uh, 
I, uh, I, you know, I took the F train into, into the village and went to um, 10 Bleecker Street where the conference was being held, which was a new rock club, which was being launched called Studio 10 by, a, and I lay, as I later found out, by a remnant faction of the Yippies, the old um, you know, counterculture group from the 1960s, which had organized the protest, most famously organized the, uh, the levitation of the Pentagon in 1967. And then the following uh -huh. year, 1968, the, uh, the big protest at the, uh, at the Democratic Convention in Chicago, where the uh, pro-war candidate, Hubert Humphrey, uh, got the nomination. <clears throat> so uh, I didn't find that out until later, but uh, it, it, it turned out that both the American chapter of Rock Against Racism, uh, which uh, they're, they're, I, believe, I believe that was 1979 actually, uh, which uh, I attended their, 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 their founding conference and then subsequently got involved with them uh, and got you know, bands from my local neighborhood in Queens to play um, you know, at their club, Studio 10. In uh, uh -huh. in the East Village, and <clears throat> and it, it turned it, it turned out that both Rock Against Racism USA and New York Coalition Against Registration and the Draft, the the group I was getting involved with at the same time through another connection, both of them turned out to be in the orbit of this remnant faction of the Yippies, who okay. were living directly across the street from the club at Nine Bleecker Street which was uh, their communal household where they had been living ever since, I believe, 1970. So um, inevitably, at a certain point, I became a yippie. <laughs> I sort mm. of gravitated into, into their orbit. And my first, um, or now I'm out of high school. Now we're talking like 1990. I guess, no, again, no, 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 no. I'm, 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 I'm jumping over a very critical episode. The, uh -huh. uh, the summer after I graduated from high school, I went um, cross country for the first time. I got as far west as South Dakota and uh, attended the, um, the Black Hills Survival Gathering, which was hosted by the American Indian Movement, the same uh, group which had organized the, uh, the occupation of, uh, of Wounded Knee in 1973, if you remember mm -hmm. that episode. And um, at that time, the... Um, the uh, uranium interests were getting ready to mine the Black Hills, which was traditional Lakota territory. Uh -huh. and, uh, the American Indian movement actually formed an alliance with the local ranchers in the area, the local right, white ranchers who were their traditional enemies. They actually uh, you know, formed an alliance with them. They kind of like, um, <clears throat> you know, as, as they told me, they, they brought their rifles to the first meetings and we brought our rifles to, to the first meetings and we totally didn't trust each other. But they actually sat down and they forged an alliance. I believe it was called the Black Hills Alliance to, um, to fight against this plan to, to mine for uranium, which would have you know, poisoned all the local waters in the area and so on, in addition to the Black Hills being sacred to the, um, to the Lakota. So, uh, and in order to get uh, you know, more um, national support for this cause and to sort of generally build a movement, um, you know, against uranium mining and against nuclear power and for Native American sovereignty and, uh, and treaty rights, they held um, the Black Hills Survival Gathering. It was actually on a, um, on a private ranch just outside of the Black Hills um, uh, where, uh, you know, activists from all over the country uh, you know, um, uh, showed up and, and, I, and I was there. And that sort of um, 
that was a really key, you know, kind of radicalizing experience for me. And, you know, I continued to write about, uh, you know, uh, indigenous rights today. And, uh, and I became an anti-nuclear activist for, uh, for several years after that. And eventually the following year wound up going out to California and participated in the blockades of the um, Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant, which um, is now slated to shut down. The last um, functioning nuclear power plant in California, now more than a generation later, it's finally slated to shut down. And back in New York, I got involved in the campaign against the Indian Point nuclear power plant, uh, mm. which is just up the Hudson River from the city, which actually now finally just did, like just like a week ago, it finally did shut down. So um, that's a, a, a long belated victory, but a victory at last. It's one of the oldest nuclear power plants in the country. So it's, shutdown was going to be inevitable at a certain point anyway. But um, <clears throat> yeah, so um, let me ask you, so was it more um, issues that you were drawn to or was it like the particular circles and groups of people that you were connected to that both, were politicizing both, you? Okay. Both. I don't really see how you can um, how you can draw a distinction there. I mean, I was you know, kind of drawn to this, uh, you know, radical milieu, as it were. Um, both because I was concerned about the issues and because I thought that the people were really cool and were, and were sort of, you know, broadening my horizons. And uh, it wasn't just a question of discrete issues. I mean, it, you know, it, it became a critique of society. It was also at this time that I was, uh, uh, you know, gradually finding out about, I guess I first uh, became aware of anarchism through the yippies and, and the folks mm -hmm. that I met out at the survival gathering. I think it was that year, 1980, that I started mm -hmm. calling myself a... Um, and I started calling myself an anarchist. And uh, also in the same period in the 80s, I got involved in what was then called the Libertarian Book Club, uh, which was actually, I mean, today the word libertarian has sort of been taken over by the free market right. But uh, uh -huh. it, 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 the, the Libertarian Book Club was actually founded by left-wing anarchists who were exiles from, from fascist Europe, anarchists who had been forced to... Um, to flee, uh, you know, uh, the Nazis and Mussolini back in uh, back in the 1940s, and uh, in order to sort of you know keep the ideology alive here in New York, uh, in you know the European anarchist diaspora, so to speak, they founded the Libertarian Book Club, and they used the term libertarian uh, to a certain extent as a um, as a euphemism because you know it was, it was right on the cusp of McCarthyism and the anti-communist hysteria and so on. I don't think they wanted to call it the Anarchist Book Club. I think they wanted to have, have you know, have the uh, avoid that uh, hot button word anarchist. So they called it the Libertarian Book Club. But back then, mm -hmm. there were more libertarians of the left than there were libertarians of the right. It was only in the 1960s with um, uh, with uh, the uh, you know the rise of the the, liber the capital L Libertarian Party and uh, Barry Goldwater uh, in, uh, in a strain of republicanism uh, that, uh, the, the, that the word libertarian was sort of subject to a, um, a hostile takeover by the free market right. Before that, it kind of like meant, it meant, you know, left-wing anarchism or you know, anti-authoritarian socialism, so to speak. So uh, event, eventually we, uh, I got involved in the Libertarian Book Club, which still survived. And I was a part of the, um, the new generation of people coming out of um, coming out of the new left and coming out of um, <clears throat> you know the anti-nuclear movement and and so mm -hmm. on, 
who uh, you know sort of uh, revitalized the uh, the Libertarian Book Club in the 1980s as you know some of the original founders. You know these old Jewish and Italian anarchists from back in the day were starting to get old and and die. So um, <clears throat> and we eventually started uh, doing a, a lecture series that we called the Anarchist Forum, and mm -hmm. that was where. Um, I met Peter Lamborn Wilson, and eventually I took over his radio show on WBAI, <clears throat> which was mm -hmm. how I became a, um, a, a radio producer at WBAI, which I was for 20 years. And that's a whole other story, which we can talk about next if you want. <clears throat> Let me um, get a, just a few more details about sure. one of these this, yep. uh, early political leaders, or even just thinking sure. about um, like how you came to anarchism. Like what did, what did anarchism mean to you at the time and has that changed over time uh well fundamentally what it meant um <clears throat> was the negation of authority um and uh you know youth rebellion particularly youth rebellion at that point in my life because i was still a youth and, uh, you know, like I say, the first thing that really got me politicized was having to register for the draft, which was particularly mm -hmm. an issue that affected youth. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, I mean, initially it was kind of more of a, um, more of a, you know, sort of a spirit of rebellion than it was an ideology exactly. I became more aware of the ideology after I got involved in the Libertarian Book Club. Uh, mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, you know the, the libertarian the, the folks in the libertarian book club would sometimes call themselves libertarian socialists which was again their kind of somewhat euphemistic way of saying anarchist but it also sort of explains more what they actually mean because you know they're anti-capitalist they want uh, you know a society organized um, around principles of um meeting human needs rather than uh rather than private property pr private mm -hmm. pr private profit um <clears throat> But they uh, didn't want it, uh, you know, to be done by uh, central committee and, and 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 bureaucrats and commissars. They wanted it to be done, uh, you know, through um, principles of direct uh, organic democracy from below. So mm -hmm. uh, that's ultimately what it it, uh, it came to mean to me. I always today I always feel this the need to um, to preface my anarchism with the word pragmatic because today I'm a pragmatic <laughs> anarchist. I'm not a rigid ideological dogmatic anarchist. And to me, you know, being, you know, orthodox kind of defeats the whole, kind of defeats the whole fundamental principle of anarchism. To me, you know, part of being an anarchist is, uh, you know, having a mind which is, which is open and adapting to circumstances and, and is not, you know, rigidly trapped in some ossified ideology. <laughs> so for, for instance, you know, contrary to the anarchist dogma, I vote. I vote with an appropriate sense of cynicism, mind you, <laughs> you know, but, but nonetheless, I vote. And, I, and, and, and as the country has gone further and further and further to the right in, in recent years, I've, I've come to see voting as more and more imperative. And certainly I am very, very, very relieved that uh, we no longer have Donald Trump in the Oval Office. Thank you very much. And while, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I continue to view ultimately I think that, you know, uh, destruction of capitalism and the state are imperative to human survival. I do not think that, uh, that the human race is going to survive just due to the ecological contradictions of the, um, the, of the daily functioning of the capitalist system. 
I do not think that the human race is going to survive unless capitalism is overthrown. And that, you know, destroying capitalism and the state, are, I still believe very strongly that is the necessary long-term project. But um, in the meanwhile, I also think that it's necessary to vote to get an outright fascist out of the Oval Office. So <clears throat> I'm a pragmatic anarchist today. Cool, thank you for making that distinction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is a very sort of broad question, but it seems like I was looking at your website and so you've, you've done writing, you've produced radio, um, you blog. So I'm wondering if you could talk to me about why it seems like you're drawn to media as, as a form of enacting your um, beliefs and politics. So could you talk to me about like why media appeals to you? Uh, well, because it's what I'm good at for starters. <clears throat> I mean, mm -hmm. my, one, my, my, my one real skill is, uh, you know, write, writing and research journalism. That's my one real skill and ranting on podcasts. I also used to rant on real radio now on podcasts like everybody else and his uncle. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I feel that, uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, opinions are great, but uh, opinions by themselves are both insufficient and can even be dangerous when they loan themselves to, um, to you know, unthinking dogmatism. The real mm -hmm. challenge is to actually um, organize facts and bring analysis to bear in such a way that, uh, you know, the opinions that you're going to act on are actually rooted in reality. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I really think that, you know, um, a comprehensive grasp of the facts is, um, uh, is critical ultimately to, uh, you know, having an informed opinion and to, and to uh, you know, and to activism and movement building. Uh, mm -hmm. So, and it, ha it also happens to be what I'm good at. Organizing information happens to be what I'm good at. So, uh, you know, that was my passion almost from the very beginning. My very first uh, journalistic experience was uh, that, 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 that same critical year, 1980. After the survival gathering, I wound up at a, um, at a Chippewa reservation in Wisconsin called Mole Lake, where I actually went there to go to a bluegrass festival. But it turned out that the, um, as with the, as with the Black Hills, uh, they were planning, Exxon was planning on mining for uranium in the immediate area. And, uh -huh. uh, and, and unlike the situation in the Black Hills, this had got very little media coverage. Hardly anybody was aware of this. So the very first journalism that I did was a, a write-up about the Exxon threat to the Mole Lake um, Chippewa Reservation, which appeared in Overthrow, which was the uh, the publication of uh, Rock Against Racism USA and the uh, and the and the Latter Day Yippies, <clears throat> when I later be I became a regular contributor to Overthrow, uh, and later as the 1980s wore on, I um, like a lot of um, you know gringo leftists at that time, I was I made the uh, the the pilgrimage down to South to Central America where all these revolutionary movements were mounting in. Um, uh, Nicaragua and uh, El Salvador and so on. I didn't actually go to El Salvador because you couldn't that really get into El Salvador at that time. But I went to uh, <laughs> to Nicaragua, Guatemala, Honduras, Costa Rica, and I did a lot of um, serious journalism as well. Initially for overthrow, 
about uh, mm -hmm. indig mostly about indigenous and campesino struggles in Central America, which later became my first book, War on the Land, Ecology and Politics in Central America, uh, which okay. was published, I believe, in 1990. Okay. Who published that? Zed in London. Okay. Zed okay. Books. Yeah. So while we're talking about other um, uh, books that you've you've done. Can you talk about your other ones? Because I think that might also help us to think about the different issues that you've written about and engaged with. Uh, well, I've written two serious books. I've written a couple of others which aren't so serious, <laughs> but I've written, okay. by, by serious, I mean scholarly, scholarly and footnoted and so on. And I'm um, struggling to finish a third. <clears throat> there have been various obstacles along the way, but um, Another big turning point in my life was uh, 1994 was the uh, Zapatista movement in, um, in, uh, in Mexico. The Zapatistas in uh, the southern state of Chiapas took up arms. They were uh, Maya indigenous communities who had been arming themselves in the jungle in Chiapas, mm -hmm. the southernmost state of Mexico, up against the Guatemalan border. Um, and when I uh, had, had been down in Central America in the, um, in the 80s, before I went down into Guatemala and into Central America, where, you know, I mean, there were, there were wars going on and so on, I, I wanted to uh, get a, um, a, a foundation in the Spanish language and some more familiarity with the culture. So I kind of, uh, I hung out for a couple of months in Chiapas before continuing down into Central America back in the 80s and uh, studied Spanish and um, studied the, uh, the history of the region in a local library there in San Cristobal de las Casas, the colonial town up in the mountains. And, and at that time, there, there were um, peasant movements in, in Chiapas which were mounting, and there were rumors that there were um, campesinos deep in the jungle in the Lacandon rainforest who were arming and preparing a guerrilla insurgency. And then on, um, on January 1st, 1994, the very uh, moment that the North American Free Trade Agreement took effect, uh, those rumors <laughs> were proven to be true. The Zapatistas marched out of the jungle and, um, and they took over San Cristobal de las Casas and a few other towns in, um, in Chiapas. And that was the beginning of the, uh, of the Zapatista uprising, which um, <clears throat> sparked a whole wave of really um, militant um, peasant and indigenous uh, um, you know, uh, movements for uh, reclaiming land and, and so on all across Mexico. So over the course of the next um, several years, um, I made several trips down to Mexico to, uh, to write about the Zapatistas and related, and related um, uh, peasant and, and uh, campesino and indigenous movements in Mexico. Uh, both for, by this time I was working for High Times magazine, we should get to my involvement in the whole question of cannabis later, but I had uh, become news editor at High Times magazine by this point, uh -huh. and, and I was also, um, my, my, my first trip to Chiapas, um, or my, my first trip to Chiapas to write about the Zapatistas, I should say, my first trip to Chiapas after the, the Zapatista rebellion uh, the, uh, I was contacted by um, some friends of mine in the, uh, who I'd been involved with through uh, uh, Native American support work in New York, who were then getting involved in launching uh, Native America's Quarterly out of the American Indian program at Cornell University, 
and I was invited <laughs> to uh, participate with them, collaborate with them. So um, I was also writing for them about uh, these movements in Mexico and also went back to Central America during these years as well, wrote about the Mosquito Indians in, um, in Nicaragua. So when I was covering, so I was covering these movements both for High Times Magazine and for Native America's Quarterly out of Cornell University and actually became a contributing editor at, um, at Native America's Quarterly. Um, and for, for High Times, I was writing more about the drug war angle because a lot of you know, de facto counterinsurgency was taking place um, in, uh, in Mexico at this time in the guise of drug enforcement. So there was kind mm -hmm. of a, you know, a, um, uh, you know, a, a narco angle, so to speak, which would be of interest to the High Times magazine and, uh, you know, writing more about the, uh, the indigenous angle for, uh, for Native America's quarterly. But um, I was really sitting pretty in those years. I was getting travel budgets to go down to Mexico, like, you know, mm -hmm. once a year. So, um, and ultimately this work turned into my second serious book, Homage to Chiapas, The New Indigenous Struggles in Mexico, uh, mm -hmm. which was published by Verso in, um, in the year 2000. Okay. And then the, the two books, the other two books that you're saying were, I think all books are serious. So what were the other two books? <laughs> Oh, uh, there were a few others. Uh, I did a, um, with Peter Lamborn Wilson, I uh, co-edited and was a contributor to a, um, a book about the community gardening movement on the Lower East Side called Avant Gardening. Get it? Avant Gardening. Uh, <laughs> I like that title. <laughs> yeah. And then I was, uh, <clears throat> about uh, 10 years ago, I was uh, commissioned um, to, uh, you know, my bread and butter has largely been uh, writing about uh, writing about cannabis ever since I was a news editor at High Times Magazine. So I was commissioned to write a, um, a sort of a uh, cannabis themed um, travel book. It was called, <clears throat> this was the publisher's idea, not mine, but it was called Cannabis Trips, a global guide that leaves no turn unstoned. Get it? No turn on stone. <laughs> that, uh, is uh, that is ponderous. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> both of those less serious books had puns in the titles, actually. It just occurred to me. Anyway, mm. so, um, so you know, I uh, did a, uh, a chapter about all of the different, um, a chapter each about, the, you know, the Glastonbury Festival and, uh, you know, all these different counterculture festivals around the world and all the... Uh, you know, the cool places where you can travel from, uh, uh, you know, Morocco to, um, to Seattle and Vancouver and so on, where there's, you know, like thriving cannabis culture and people who are, you know, in, in the, in the you know, friends of cannabis would be uh, interested in traveling there and checking out the, uh, you know, alternative scene. So it was a fun book. Absolutely. And I think it was, you know, a worthwhile book, but it certainly wasn't a, wasn't a serious or scholarly book. <clears throat> can, so, oh, can uh, you give me the years that you were uh, news editor for High Times? You... See if I can remember exactly. I believe I started in 92 or 93. Okay. And uh, ultimately what happened is I guess, uh, I guess that ended in 1999 or 2000. Uh, because I sort of, I took a sabbatical, so to speak. I took off a year 
And my telephone is ringing, but I'm just going to let it ring. <clears throat> okay. The machine should pick up after four rings. Okay. Let's just wait it out. That's three. It's ambiance. It's ambiance. <laughs> That's four. Yeah, okay. Where was I? Right. Uh, so um, in 1999 or 2000, I took off a year from uh... Did I lose your audio? Sorry, it's uh, it's, it's another oh. stupid um, robo call. It's a, Oh, okay. A phishing call. Sorry about that. Okay. <clears throat> That's great. All right, I Get, third time now, third time's a charm. In uh, 1999 or 2000, I, uh, I got the book contract to write the book about, uh, about indigenous movements in Mexico. And I, um, I took a sabbatical from High Times to write the book with the okay. understanding that after the book was in print, you know, a year later, uh, my job would still be waiting for me. I, uh -huh. um, that uh, didn't work out. <laughs> there were editorial changes during that year. And um, for a while, uh, there was kind of a, um, a faction at High Times. There were kind of two factions at High Times. There, there was one faction that, would, that actually viewed cannabis and the war on drugs as a serious political issue. After all, you know, something like 100,000, even now, a generation later, when there's been all of this progress in terms of you know legalization happening state by state, there's still uh -huh. something like a hundred thousand people behind bars in uh -huh. the United uh -huh. States for for cannabis, and uh, you know with and we're certainly well aware of all of the racial disparities where that's involved, um, mm -hmm. and you know the war on drugs being intimately linked to systemic racism in this country, and in addition you had all of these uh, you know uh, the foreign interventions which were going on. And uh, you know, counterinsurgency being waged in places like Mexico and Colombia and Burma, in the um, ostensible name of um, of the war on drugs. So there was, uh, you know, one faction on staff that saw um, cannabis as as part of a really serious political issue. And we were also into, you know, into having fun. You know, <laughs> it's not like we were killjoys. But mm -hmm. I mean, I did write that book about cannabis tourism, after all, right? But uh, there, was a, there was another element on, on staff at High Times, which was kind of you know, hostile to the notion of serious journalism and just wanted to be completely empty and hedonistic and actually did view those of us who were interested in um, serious journalism as killjoys. So huh. uh, for a while, that faction had the upper hand and I didn't in fact get my job back um, after the book came out. <clears throat> and uh, at the same time, um, Cornell University cut off the funds to Native Americas. And um, after it had been publishing for about 10 years, it also um, folded. Okay. Uh, so um, I was kind of left without a gig after, after the book came out. So, um, and this was also at the same time that, uh, you know, um, that the World Wide Web and bloggery were really taking off. So, um, and then 9-11 happened, which got, which, ah. um, uh, I sort of, uh, you know, I was a 9-11 survivor, so to speak. I was right here in lower Manhattan, saw it all happen, breathed the toxic uh -huh. air for, uh, for, you know, weeks afterwards. Um, and that uh, gave me a real serious sense of political urgency. 
And uh, that was when I launched my website initially to, um, to blog about the, uh, the war on terrorism and the new uh, you know, military interventions in, re in response to 9-11. Uh, uh -huh. And I continue to maintain it today. Today, the scope is a lot broader than that. It's had a few different names, but the name it currently has is Counter Vortex. Okay. Did it start as World War Four? Started as World War Four report. Yes, actually started okay. as World War Three report, and then became World War Four report with the idea okay. that the new war on terrorism was actually the fourth World War, that the uh, the Cold War had been the third. <clears throat> okay. So does Counter Vortex come before the radio show or simultaneously? Well, I started doing the radio show in um, about the same time I started working for High Times in the early 90s. Initially, okay. yeah, it had been Peter Lamborn Wilson's show, the mm -hmm. Moorish Orthodox Radio Crusade. It's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, that, <laughs> and explaining what it means is a whole other conversation. We can get into it if you want to. But um, in any event, Peter Lamborn Wilson launched the Moorish Orthodox Radio Crusade in I believe 1988. And I started out as his understudy, because he was you know, spending more and more time traveling uh, in Ireland and so on, uh, and, uh, <clears throat> and uh, was out of town more and more. And he would you know, turn the show over to me. And mm -hmm. eventually he abandoned it completely and it fell into my hands in kind of feudalistic manner. And then you know, I started doing a lot of traveling, going down to Mexico and Central America. And I started bringing in my own understudies who later became co-host, you know, full-time co-host, particularly Anne-Marie Hendrickson. Um, mm -hmm. And for a, uh, for a while, we were really kind of a thriving collective in the 1990s. Um, mm -hmm. But I continued to do it on into the, in fact, I think that, you know, the best period of it was um, in some ways um, in that uh, post 9-11 period, when I did a lot of um, very, I, I think, very incisive, uh, you know, programming about um, <clears throat> about uh, you know Afghanistan and Iraq and so on, I got involved in trying to uh, you know loan some support to the um, the uh, secular civil anti-imperialist resistance, particularly in Iraq during this period, um, and you know, and so a lot of my work, both on the radio show and uh, on uh, on my website, Counter Vortex. Um, in the post 9-11 period were, um, were around that. And eventually I lost the radio show in, let's see, would have been uh, just over 10 years ago. Last episode was the Ides of March, March 15th, 2011. And that again is a whole story. Okay, we're going to come to that. Oh, I have, we'll come I have to a, that. Okay. But I, yeah, go, go, I've got go, a little... go, just about uh, 20 years, I would say I did the radio. I mean, I was kind of phased into it because I started as Peter's understudy and eventually uh -huh. over the course of two or three years kind of took it over full time. I mean, it was only once a week, so not really full time, but you know, I was the, the steady host. Uh, but uh -huh. for, for a period of around 20 years, from around uh, 91 through uh, 2011. Okay. Yeah. So just for the sake of the transcript, I'm going to note that um, I listened to some programs on in the Internet Radio Archive. And in particular, I listened to the history of the radio show, which is an episode titled Moorish Orthodoxy Explained Number One. 
and the date on that one is November 4th, 2000. So like, we don't have to go into that extensive history. I'm more interested in um, getting your perspective on like what Moorish orthodoxy is and how it connects to the, what the radio show was doing. Uh, okay, well, that, that is pretty much what, what we discussed in that episode, but I can give you the nutshell version. Yeah, please, yeah. Because uh, then people can refer to the, to the other copy if they want to get more details. I mean, ultimately, it, it all, I have to mention, uh, you know, Noble Drew Ali and Moorish science. Noble Drew mm -hmm. Ali was um, the, the prophet of the Moorish science movement, um, founded, I believe, in uh, 1914. In, um, in Newark, New Jersey, but uh, later gained a real serious following in, um, in Chicago. It was kind of a precursor to the Black Muslim movement. Um, and uh, if you uh, read the book, um, The Messenger by here, I've got it on my bookshelf. Let me see who the author is. <clears throat> the Messenger, The Rise and Fall of Elijah Muhammad by Carl Evans which is, of course, you know, a, a biography, a biogra biography of Elijah Muhammad, the founder of the Black Muslim movement. Uh, in the early chapters, he explains how, um, how Elijah Muhammad was actually influenced by Moorish science and the noble Drew Ali. So, um, but they didn't have uh, the same kind of, um, the same kind of um, separatist, uh, element that, that later on the, the Black Muslim movement took up. And uh, they, they, they held that uh, the Black folk in America were actually Moors. And uh, the, the, there had been this ancient Moorish civilization on both sides of the Atlantic. And this was mixed up with the theorizing about lost continents of Atlantis and so on, and links between mm -hmm. you know, the ancient Moorish civilization of North Africa and um, <clears throat> And, uh, and the pre-Columbian Moor civilization, which they postulated existed in, 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 in the Americas. Now, uh, <clears throat> this is all very interesting. Um, I don't take it um, seriously in a literal sense, exactly. But um, when Peter Lamborn Wilson was a, uh, eventually, or jumping ahead of myself here, eventually Moor science was kind of superseded by, um, by Elijah Muhammad's Nation of Islam, but they mm -hmm. continue, but they continue to exist and continue to have a following. And uh, when Peter Lamborn Wilson was a young man back in the 1960s, he fell in with uh, some followers of um, of Moorish science in Baltimore, and was sort of given a um, a franchise by them to sort of form a. Um, a, uh, a chapter of the more science movement or a branch of the more science movement for like, you know, white dropouts, like, you know, the, these, these white bohemian dropouts who were um, alienated from white culture. And, uh, that, that, and that was when Peter founded the Moorish Orthodox Church. And then, you know, jumping uh, forward a generation later, uh, you know, I fell into Peter's orbit through the Libertarian Book Club in the 1980s and eventually okay. took over the uh, the radio show from him. And initially I was kind of um, alienated by the name and, and the whole Moorish Orthodox thing. I thought that it was kind of, you know, wacky, but I kind of grew into it to tell you the truth. 
Hmm. And um, <clears throat> why why is that? Why is that? Well, uh, partially because I became uh, more and more aware of um, of my own Moorish roots, particularly on my um, on my Italian side, on my mother's side. Um, I uh, there was always family lore that um, that uh, we had Saracen roots. The Saracens were what the uh, you know the the Moors or, or the the Arabs were called um, in medieval times, and they controlled just like they controlled Spain for hundreds of years. They also controlled Sicily, and from Sicily they made um, incursions into uh, the mainland of um, of Italy to try to establish footholds, and were at war with um, with the Byzantine Empire for for control of southern Italy, and they established. Um, uh, footholds in in southern Italy, and there had always been. I'm not going to get too deep into the details, but there had been family lore that uh, the village where my mother's peeps came from in southern Italy had actually been a um, a Saracen village. And when I finally made the pilgrimage there and, and visited there in uh, 2002, uh, my relatives there told me that it was all true. <laughs> Huh, okay. And, um, and, and that you know, it was well known there that the village had actually been founded by by the Saracens until um, finally um, it was destroyed by the armies of Constantinople like a thousand years ago. And the old village what was destroyed, and the new village, which is itself a thousand years old, was built. So, um, and then uh, you know, on the um, uh, even on my uh, you know on my Jewish side, you know, I've become. Uh, more and more interested in the uh, the so-called um, both you know the Khazar thesis, which is the notion that the Ashkenazim actually um, traced their roots back to the back to the Khazars, who were a um, a nomadic Turkic people from Central Asia who converted to Judaism back uh, during uh, you know the period of uh, the same period when um, the three big empires of that period were um, the um, <clears throat> The the uh, the Muslim Empire of um, of the the Caliphate of Baghdad and Harun al Rashid, and the, um, the, the 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 Christian Frankish Empire of Charlemagne, and they tr tried to establish you know their own empire in what's now southern Russia and Ukraine. They wanted their own distinct identity, and they converted to Judaism, and they were a, a kind of a um, a Jewish Turkic Empire for um, for a, a couple of hundred years. And um, you know, famously, uh, Arthur Kessler in his book *The um, The Thirteenth Tribe*, uh, you know, postulated that this was you know the ethnogenesis of the um, of the Ashkenazim, and uh, certainly the um, I mean, the, the Hebrew language is a Semitic language, and you know, it's related to Arabic more closely than any other language. And these, in uh, in turn, both um, uh, Hebrew and um, and Arabic and Aramaic and um, Amharic, the uh, one of the languages of Ethiopia. These are the Semitic languages, which are in turn uh, a part of what's called the Urethrin languages or the uh, the Afroasiatic languages, which also uh, include um, Tamazat or Berber, which is the language of the indigenous peoples of North Africa. So, you know, there is this sort of um, strain uh, in, um, you know, uh, Jewish radical circles. It's kind of an esoteric strain, <laughs> I guess, but I'm certainly a part of it, which, uh, you know, rather than um, uh, rallying around a colonial settler state, 
Israel, mm -hmm. which is kind of, you know, an extension of European colonialism, uh, you know, throwing in, I believe, in throwing in our lot with, um, with the, uh, uh, with the, with the Palestinians and with the, uh, you know, anti-imperialist forces of the, of the Arab world in North Africa in a um, sense of pan-Semitic unity. I see. Okay. If you're following me. Uh-huh. Yeah. So uh, that's, think the sense, that, that's the sense in which this is all the stuff that I was ranting about on the radio for, um, uh, for 20 years, particularly <laughs> in that post 9-11 in that post period, in the years immediately after 9-11. This is the kind of right. stuff that I was ranting about rather obsessively on WBAI. And that was really the period in which I really sort of, you know, took on something of a, uh, a Moorish identity, so to speak. So can you tell me about some of the shows that you selected to donate to Columbia? Like, how did you, how did, what was your thought process in choosing which ones would be in the collection here? Uh, well, <clears throat> first of all, knowing what you're interested in and how we got to know each other, Kimberly, uh, <laughs> around, uh, you know, the, the work of the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space and mm -hmm. um, the whole um, struggle on the Lower East Side to save the community gardens and so on. We haven't even touched on that. And that's really rather critical. Uh, but I gave you a lot of the, uh, the shows that had to do with that, about you know, local Lower East Side and New York City issues around, um, around saving community gardens and the whole struggle around Tompkins Square Park and so on. Because um, that's what, uh, and you know, a lot of the interviews I did around that. Um, uh -huh. Because, you know, that, uh, you know, has more to do with, uh, you know, the oral history of radical movements in New York City, which is what I thought you would be particularly interested in. So, I appreciate uh, that. <laughs> so I chose, um, I chose a lot of that material, but with okay. a, a smattering of, you know, the ranting that I was doing about um, these other themes that we've been discussing as well. Okay. I mean, the show was very eclectic. I mean, that was one of the beautiful things about it is that... Um, you know, it was late night radio. We're all sort of standing on the shoulders of Bob Fass, who really mm -hmm. invented late night freeform radio on WBAI back in the 1960s. And uh, he just died. You can read his mm -hmm. old in the um, in the New York Times. I believe it was just last week yeah. that he passed away. We so, have his collection here at Columbia. Yes, so, that's yeah. right. You've got his collection at Columbia. That's right. You do. You do indeed. Yeah. So uh, very, very timely that we're doing this interview just, um, I think, about a week after he passed on. Uh, but we're all sort of standing on the shoulders of Bob Fass. He really sort of um, uh, pioneered the, the whole notion of, you know, freeform late night radio, where you can just do whatever you're inspired to do. And there isn't any rigid format that you had to adhere to. Um, mm -hmm. And he initially, back in the 1960s, he did, I believe he did all of the overnight slots on WBAI. And eventually he sort of began farming them out to his friends, <laughs> again, in kind of feudalistic fashion. And uh, James Irsay took over one of the late night slots. He did a show called Primary Sources. He was a friend of Peter Lamborn Wilson. When he got tired of doing it in the uh, 1980s, he turned it over to, uh, to Peter Lamborn Wilson, who turned it into the Moorish Orthodox Radio Crusade. And then when he got tired of doing it, he turned it over to me. And then right. I brought in Anne-Marie Hendrickson as a co-host. And after I was purged from WBAI, um, she was brought back. So she's actually, I'm not on BAI anymore, but she is. Uh, she's doing a program called The Mansion for a Rat, which is actually a reference to, it's a literary reference. It's a reference to a poem by E.E. E. Cummings, I believe. 
<clears throat> I'm not sure, don't quote me on that. But um, in any event, um, but again, getting back to, the, to that period when, um, when I was ranting about all this stuff on the Moorish Orthodox Radio Crusade in the late 90s and into the, uh, the aughts or whatever you want to call them, uh, again, I had the freedom to talk about whatever I wanted to talk about. And I could sort of like, you know, not have a, um, a, you know, a format and I could just sort of extemporize. But I actually have, not to toot my horn too much, but I actually have journalistic chops as well. I can actually do journalism. So right. I, I felt like I was sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, the radio, show, the, the radio show during that period was kind of the best of both worlds. Because if I just wanted to uh, rant and um, extemporize, <laughs> I could do that. I had total freedom mm -hmm. to do that. But if I wanted to, like, you know, really do a serious interview and actually do and really explore an issue, uh, you know, with a from a, uh, you know, a, a rigorous journalistic standpoint um, or a, a approach, you know, I could do that as well. So, again, right. a lot of the program that I did about, um, uh, you know, the interviews that I did, for instance, with, uh, you know, Marxist and feminist and so on from Iraq who opposed both the U.S. occupation and the, uh, you know, the jihadist insurgency. You know, I feel that was, you know, pretty important journalism, actually, that I was doing during that period as well. Right. Can we uh, circle back to um, Anne-Marie Hendrickson? Can you just tell me about, like, meeting her and just about your relationship with her and doing the show? Sure. She was also um, uh, a part of that whole scene around the Libertarian Book Club. So I got to know her at the same time and in the same, uh, you know, circles as I got to know Peter Lamborn Wilson. Um, so she was, uh, you know, a part of, um, of the anarchist scene. Uh, she was also a part of a group that I was also a part of during this period, also, uh, kind of <clears throat> a part of this whole milieu called neither East nor West, which was involved in, um, building support for, um, uh, anarchist and ecological and, um, anti-nuclear and feminist movements, which were beginning to emerge in the Eastern Bloc as uh, things began to loosen up there in the end game of the Cold War. Um, and uh, what the, the, the thing that really made me really, really impressed with her is that um, after the Chernobyl accident, um, Anne-Marie Hendrickson, uh, you know, the, the, anti, the, uh, the, the nuclear disaster at Chernobyl in, um, in the Ukraine, and I believe it was 1986, Anne-Marie Hendrickson and another one of the co-founders of Neither East Nor West, Bob McGlynn, who passed on a few years ago, they um, went to Moscow and they smuggled in a banner that read, um, uh, you know, something like no to nuclear power, um, uh, no, no nuclear power, no nuclear weapons, uh, you know, uh, peace and environmental security, East and West. No, actually, forgive me. It said no more Chernobyls, no more Hiroshima's to really make the point that they were opposing nuclear power East and West. Okay. So, uh, you know, so no, no more Chernobyls, no more Hiroshima's, uh, you know, um, environmental uh, sanity and uh, peace and environmental sanity East and West, something to that effect. They smuggled in a banner, a big banner with those words and they, they went to Gorky Park immediately upon landing. They went to Gorky Park and they unfurled the banner and immediately were arrested by the KGB. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and deported. So, but, the, but it got some international headlines and it kind of, um, you know, made a splash. 
So I was really, really impressed with that. I thought that was just so bitching. So um, uh, that was what really got me very, very impressed with Anne-Marie Hendrickson. So uh, I brought her on as uh, initially, uh, you know, sort of as, uh, as my understudy and eventually as my, as my co-host. Um, uh-huh. she, event- you know, she had more of a, um, a literary and a pop culture kind of um, take on things in terms of what she liked to discuss. And I, I ultimately was more of uh, the real hard edged, you know, uh, political activist um, type programming. But uh, I think it was a good mix for the, uh, the 10 years or so that we were, um, that we were collaborating. And then uh, <clears throat> jumping ahead of ourselves, uh, you know, I was ultimately purged from WBAI and the Moorish Orthodox Radio Crusade was canceled. But then uh, a couple of years after that, a few years after that, um, management approached her, not me, but Anne-Marie, <laughs> because she's not the one who blew it as a loud mouth, which that, that was my doing. Uh, and they, uh, they, they, they brought her back, in, back, back onto the radio, back onto the airwaves again. And so mm-hmm. she's continuing to do a, a, her program, Mansion for a Rat, which uh, again is a more of a, uh, even the title is kind of a literary reference. Uh, so right. it's, more, it's, more, it's more kind of, uh, you know, um, literary oriented than really hard edge political programming, but it's uh, right. very worthwhile radio and I'm glad she's doing it. I want to check she, it out. She, she does, you know, do, do some, some worthwhile, uh, you know, uh, programming on political issues as, as well. Right. Or the theme of, uh, you know, uh, cultural politics and historical background and that kind of thing. Uh, other members of the Moorish Orthodox Radio Crusade Collective, by the way, who I should mention are um, Sharon Gregory, who came in along with Anne-Marie and uh, later took on the radio persona Pickles of the North. Uh, when she got involved with um, another program on WBAI, <clears throat> if I'm not blowing her secret identity there, our engineer, Bob McGill, uh, who uh, definitely um, saved me from many a uh, an on-air gaffe because I was never very good at using the control board. So uh, he sort of took over that duty for a few years. And um, also uh, passed on a few years ago, really missed the guy. He was a good friend. Bob McGill, farewell. And uh, Max Schmied, who was a member of uh, WBAI operations staff, who was at least a, um, a de facto member of the collective. He was definitely um, very much uh, collaborating with the Moorish Orthodox Radio Crusade during that period. So, um, but the two things that we haven't, uh, at, you're, you're in charge here, so you can uh, guide the conversation. But I just want to point out that the two things we really haven't discussed in, um, in any great depth are, um, first, the how I was purged from WBAI and um, the Lower East Side element, you know, the, the local element of, um, of my work and political involvement. Well, Bill, those, I have a list of questions and topics here and those two things are on here i'm on page i'm on page two so okay just just reminding you we can go on as long as we want it's no problem let's talk about um because you've mentioned like being purged from ba um to me a couple of times so i wanted to first though can you talk about the trajectory of your relationship with wbai because i'm i'm unclear on if because the show happened to be on that station, that that was your connection to WBAI primarily, or if you had any other 
like had you volunteered there before like so can we get like a kind of the scope of the relationship and then lead into the the purging sure Uh, WB, even well before I uh, got involved at the station, WBAI was pretty um, key to my uh, uh, radicalization and the emergence of my political consciousness. I started listening to it again, you know, in that same period when I was initially radicalized, immediately upon graduating from high school, I started listening to BAI just as I was, you know, gravitating to um, the radical circles in New York City generally. It was just natural that I would become a WBAI listener. And actually the very first um, uh, work that I did with WBAI was, uh, remember I told you that my my very first um, political activist experience was was with that anti-draft group, New York Coalition Mm -hmm. Against Registration Mm -hmm. of the Draft. They did like a very brief, um, like 15 minute, uh, once a month segment on, on WBAI back during that period which I was on a couple of times. So that was okay. actually my very first involvement with WBAI was, uh, was back then. Okay. Uh, but um, I was, uh, you know, listening to WBAI. That's how I, uh, you know, started listening to, uh, and also I'm a night owl. I always have been, I stay up all night, just kind of my natural bio rhythm. So uh, I became a real uh, aficionado of, uh, of that, you know, late night programming that, that, that overnight Freeform programming, so I naturally became a um, uh, you know an avid listener to Peter Lamborn Wilson and the Moorish Orthodox Radio Crusade, and it was also just about that same period that I uh, you know got to know him personally mm-hmm. through the Libertarian Book Club. I'm not sure which came first. I'm not sure if I was first listening to him on the radio, or if I and and, and then got to know him, or if I first got to know him and then because I got to know him, I started listening to him on the radio. It sort of happened simultaneously, to tell you the truth. Okay. Uh, but, you know, I mean, WBAI was um, <clears throat> uh, back, uh, you know, back back in the 1980s, it was really doing uh, really amazing work and on into the 90s. And it still does some good work, I will acknowledge, although it is the proverbial shadow of its former self. And um, my eventual um, falling out with management had to do with my, um, what, what, or what was, was related to my general um, alienation from a lot of uh, mainstream leftist thinking, or I'm not even gonna call it that, it's not even thinking, that's almost too flattering a word to use. And I wouldn't even say that it's actually leftist, but thinking on what you know it, it appears to be the left, and this especially since 9-11, this uh, you know growing embrace of um, of right wing conspiracy theory <clears throat> and uh, you know uh, this, this notion that you have to rally around any dictator that the U.S. you know ostensibly opposes, even if they're uh, you know genocidal fascists like Bashar Assad, actually is very interesting. The um, the, the first real turning point where I felt that the left really began to drop the ball was 9-11. There was a period, uh, I mean, generally, you know, there was a sense of, of social retreat beginning with, um, you know, 1980 and Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, uh, you know, there was a sense that things were beginning to turn around first with the, the end of the Cold War 
um, where though I felt that particularly with the fall of the East Bloc, there was like a real political opening, but then shortly, it, you know, there was a sort of a capitalist restoration in the former East Bloc countries and that political opening seemed to close. And uh, then there was this sense of um, triumphalism, you know, Western capitalist triumphalism, which was again, a period of reaction where everybody was very demoralized. And then came the Zapatista rebellion in 1994, which um, directly inspired the anti-globalization movement and the, um, the, you know, the protest around the World Trade Organization in Seattle in 1999 and, mm -hmm. um, and so on. And there was again, a sense that things were beginning to, um, you know, popular movements were beginning to pick up steam and things were going, there was at least, you know, something, a sense of a certain opening. Things were, uh, you know, there was room for, for popular movements and anti-capitalist analysis. And, and, and there was a, a certain progressive um, trajectory. So, um, and again, there was a certain sense of hope and then 9-11 happens. Then 9-11 right. happens. And uh, that was the first big um, turning point where I felt that things really, this was also related to my um, obsessive blogging in this period and trying to you know, bring some clarity to the whole question of you know, the war on terrorism and how the progressive forces react to it. But uh, one of the, there, were, there were two things which happened at this time uh, on, on the left in general is your first, um, with you know the new interventions that were launched in initially Afghanistan, then Iraq, the uh, there was kind of a shift from anti-capitalism, which had sort of been uh, you know the uh, fundamental analysis of the whole anti-globalization movement to anti-imperialism. Now I don't have a problem with anti-imperialism per se, but uh, the anti-capitalism was sort of lost. And, uh, uh. and there was this sense that, you know, you have to rally around any regime, whether it's, you know, Saddam Hussein or, or Bashar Assad or any regime that is, you know, seemingly threatened by U.S. imperialism, you have to uncritically rally around. And this became, you know, the, 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 the growing tendency in the left. And, you know, these regimes are thoroughly capitalist, right? <laughs> so, you know, anti and, and, and eventually it, be, you know, was even extended to, uh, you know, to Putin. And, um, and, and Russia and whoever Russia was backing on the world stage, you had to support. And, you know, I mean, Russia, if, if, if rallying around the Soviet Union was an error back during the Cold War, it was perhaps a somewhat more forgivable error because at least then Russia was communist. <laughs> right. You know, now it's thoroughly capitalist, you know, it's capitalist right. to the core. So to my mind, it's not even a, it's not even a forgivable error in any sense. So, um, that was, uh, that was one thing. Uh, also related to this, there was, um, you know, the whole notion that, you know, the, um, the, the invasion of Iraq in particular, you know, this whole trying to um, reshape the, uh, the face of the Middle East so that it would be, uh, you know, safe for U.S. interest and for Israel uh, was, you know, perceived to be the design of the so-called neoconservatives. And there was a, uh, forgive me, but there was a big element of anti-Semitism, which was, um, uh, <clears throat> began to infect, uh, you know, leftist and anti-imperialist circles. Now, there had been this whole sort of canard about anti-Semitism at WBAI. For, mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of, you know, and I'm the first one to acknowledge that accusations of anti-Semitism are often made with bad intent and are made disingenuously to, um, you know, to tar any criticism of Israel or any anti-Zionism. And I am 
anti-Zionist. Let me make that explicitly clear. But mm -hmm. uh, when you start portraying, you know, uh, imperialist wars as, um, you know, um, the work of, you know, hidden Jewish cabals, that's anti-Semitism, okay? And uh, that became more and more the, um, uh, you know, this, this, the, the mentality of, um, uh, you know, the ostensible, you know, anti-imperialist left. And of course, this made the anti-imperialist left ripe for entryism by the radical right. And there were more, and, and, and BAI finally began, um, began promoting figures from the radical right. And what really, uh, you know, in their, particularly in their fundraising premiums, where, uh, you know, uh, this, the station is in it was, was perennially, you know, just on, on the brink of, of economic collapse and more mm -hmm. and more in these years and, you know, had to hold fundraising marathon, marathons more and more frequently and began uh, <clears throat> uh, offering, you know, these so-called premiums, you know, you pledge a hundred dollars and we'll send you, you know, um, this, uh, you know, CD or, um, or DVD or whatever, uh, you know, with the latest um, conspiracy theory potboiler about how space aliens blew up the World Trade Center. Space aliens with Jewish last names blew up the World Trade Center. And that's not an exaggeration. That is literally, they were promoting this guy by the name of David Icke, or I'm uh -huh. not quite sure how his name is pronounced, who is like- I-K-I-C-K-E, just yes, spelling yes, the transcript. I-C-K-E, okay. exactly right. And he's this British former sportscaster who's become like this big star on the, um, on the conspiracy you know, um, circuit. And he's, you know, literally claiming that, uh, you know, the, the, the world is ruled by shape-shifting reptilians from another dimension mm. who all have Jewish last names like Rothschild. And, um, and that, you know, <clears throat> BAI was promoting this garbage. They were giving out, you know, his material as, um, as fundraising premiums. And uh, I objected to this very strenuously over the air. And, um, and I uh, was ultimately purged on you know, so-called free speech radio, I was purged. I, I lost my show. And interestingly, the very first, the, 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 the very last broadcast that I did, the Ides of March, 2011, March mm -hmm. 15th, 2011, was also the day of the first anti-regime protest in Syria. And it was the day that the Syrian revolution began. Oh, and uh, <clears throat> That was kind of the second big turning point where the, uh, you know, the so-called anti-imperialist left began, uh, you know, making its big turn towards uh, reaction and rallying around fascist dictators. You know, 9-11 was the first and the Syrian revolution was the second. And, uh, you know, the, the, the consensus position of the anti-imperialist left, and I feel like I should use air quotes around left, <clears throat> Uh, in the United States today is one in support of the Bashar Assad regime. And, uh, you know, I, this is just an absolutely, you know, utterly reactionary pro-fascist uh, position. And uh, so I've been uh, ranting a lot about this, you know, on my podcast, which I've been doing since being purged from the radio and on my website, Counter Vortex. And also I got involved with a group, Serious Solidarity NYC. We held a... Um, a weekly vigil in Union Square Park for several years uh, every Friday in Union Square Park in solidarity with the weekly Friday protest against the, um, against the Bashar Assad regime in Syria. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, the uh, so-called anti-imperialist left 
will, you know, protest, oh, no, we don't really, we don't support the regime. We just oppose U.S. intervention in Syria. But that's absolutely a lie. It's simply a lie. They don't, they don't oppose U.S. intervention in Syria because, you know, the, the biggest U.S. intervention in Syria has been against ISIS, not against, uh, not against Bashar Assad. And the, U, United, the United States bombs destroyed the city of Raqqa because it was mm -hmm. in the hands of ISIS, you know, with thousands of casualties. And there wasn't a peep of protest about it out of the anti-imperialist left. But then every time the, uh, the Assad regime carries out a poison gas attack, they start spreading these conspiracy theories about how it was mm. really done by the rebels as a provocation. They really gassed themselves as a provocation in you know, mm. defiance of all logic and against the findings of the, uh, the organization, the United Nations Organization for the uh, Prevention of Chemical Weapons and, um, and, and the findings of every human rights group, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, et cetera, et cetera. They trot out this conspiracy theory every time. And then on the um, two occasions, Two occasions over the, over the course of the past 10 years that the war has been going on, the United States bombed uh, one of um, Assad's air bases in response to um, chemical weapons attacks and didn't kill any civilians, just you know, destroyed a bunch of airplanes, just destroyed a bunch of warplanes. Then all of these so-called anti-war hypocrites get out there and start protesting. But when, this, mm -hmm. when, when, when US bombs destroyed a city and killed hundreds, maybe thousands of civilians, they didn't have a thing to say about it because, because then the US was bombing Assad's enemies, ISIS. So uh, it's utter hypocrisy. And uh, th so yeah, me losing my radio show on WBAI was part and parcel of my general you know, alienation from uh, the so-called anti-imperialist left. And I have to emphasize the so-called because they're not uh -huh. anti-imperialist. First of all, they don't oppose Russian imperialism. They support Russian imperialism. And, um, and the truth is they don't even oppose US imperialism anymore. <laughs> because when the U, like I say, when the US destroyed, destroyed Raqqa, they, they didn't raise a peep of protest about it. It's entirely, it's not a position against US imperialism. It's a position in favor of the genocidal dictatorship of Bashar Assad. Forgive me for ranting. Oh, thank you for going through it because I read, I wanted to just get into the transcript. I read the, I think it was a blog post on Counter Vortex about, about the purging from BAI. And I think I got there through your website. Um, it was also written up so, in the New York Times, by the way. <clears throat> I'll have to look for that. I think, yeah. yeah, you told me that and I forgot about that. I'll look, look for that too. And maybe we can include that as related material. Um, but I think it's it's useful to have it here in this transcript, how you see this all of a particular kind of political move on the left or the so-called anti-imperialist left, as you call it. So thank you for um, explaining it, even though you've already like written about it. Well, thank okay, you so my ranting. <laughs> let's go to then. Um, like the Lower East Side and the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space. Can you sure. talk about how you connected with the museum? And let's talk about the tours. Yeah, sure. Well, I, again, I should bring this all the way back to the 1980s. <clears throat> During the same period that I was getting uh, radicalized, you know, I started hanging out more and more in the Lower East Side. I mean, the <laughs> Yippie headquarters was, uh, you know, at Nine Bleecker Street, kind of on the edge of the Lower East Side. And uh, you know, more and more, I was coming into um, into the Lower East Side from Queens, 
to go to uh, the punk rock shows at CBGB and, you know, smaller clubs in on the Lower East Side. Uh, eventually, I mean, I went through a period of being kind of nomadic and did a lot of traveling. I spent a few years out in California, went down to Central America on two, you know, big <laughs> six month treks during the same period. But eventually when I landed back in New York City um, in the uh, mid to late eighties, uh, I was in Brooklyn. I was in Park Slope and Flatbush for a while, but uh, still very much connected to the whole scene on the Lower East Side. And this was the period when the whole squatter movement was taking off on the Lower East Side. There was all of this, um, all these, these buildings uh, on the Lower East Side, which had been abandoned during the period of, um, of urban blight. Uh, you know, in the 1970s and the, the city fiscal crisis and all of that. So there were all of these um, abandoned buildings, some of which were turned over legally to homesteaders through the, the city um, homesteading program. But the, the, the official homesteading program by which, you know, local residents could get permission from the city government to move into these abandoned buildings, which had come mm -hmm. under the control of the City Department of Housing Preservation and Development, HPD, um, <clears throat> that the program was very slow and very limited and not enough buildings were being opened up. So um, the squatters started to, um, started to come in and, uh, and sort of started doing it guerrilla style, not, not actually going through HPD. And they, 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 they called HPD uh, the city department of housing prevention and destruction because the city <laughs> was sitting on all this property and just letting it deteriorate and keeping people out of it. So the squatters started, you know, taking over these buildings illegally. And, you know, mm -hmm. as I'll say on the tour, you know, the two differences between the, um, between the homesteaders and the squatters is, you know, one is that the, um, the homesteaders were for the most part, the mostly Puerto Rican folk in the neighborhood by that time. The squatters were for the most part, the first young white punk rockers and anarchists and political radicals who started moving back into what by, by that point due to so-called white flight had become, uh, you know, almost entirely Latino neighborhood. So, um, uh, you know, there is this critique that the, that the squatters were um, unwittingly kind of like the advance guard of, of, of gentrification. It's kind of an, an ironic, complicated history. But, uh, uh -huh. um, but they were also fighting against gentrification and it all, it all came to a head, you know, but, but when the movement was at its peak in the late 1980s, there's probably something like 20 buildings on the Lower East Side, which, which were being squatted. And at that, by that time, there was also a homeless encampment, which had been established in, um, in Tompkins Square Park. And it all came to head in the summer of 1988, when the administration okay. of Mayor Ed Koch says, no, we can't have the public parks being taken over by the homeless. We have to start imposing curfews in the parks. Up until this point, all the parks had been open 24 seven. Nobody had ever thought to close them. Now Mayor Ed Koch says, okay, the, um, uh, all the parks are gonna start closing at one o'clock in the morning, starting with Tompkins Square Park. So the homeless encampment is going to be evicted. This is the same rap I give on my tour, by the way. So, <laughs> so um, <clears throat> on the first night that the curfew was to be enforced, August 6, 1988, Avenue A, just outside the park, just to the, to the west of the park, filled up with uh, riot police wearing helmets and shields and full on gear and their, um, and their clubs ready to rock and roll. And Tompkins Square filled up with anarchists when, and squatters wearing, uh, you know, bicycle crash helmets and um, shields improvised from garbage can lids and rocks and bottles and bricks they've been saving for the occasion, also ready to rock and roll. 
And um, the obvious happened at one o'clock in the morning, the police came in, tried to clear out the park, the anarchists fought back, and it exploded into what we still call today the Tompkins Square Park riot, although there had been a few before. And as we shall see, there's been quite a few since. So, um, <clears throat> but the police really went overboard that night. Immediately, the fighting spilled out into Avenue A. And they attacked anybody who was on the street, not just protesters, anybody who was on the street. They viciously attacked with their nightsticks. And a lot of people were hospitalized and the police brought out helicopters and all of Avenue A was a war zone all night long <clears throat> until the sun came up. And I was there that night, uh, I was kind of skirting along the edges on my bicycle, uh, but I, I was there that night witnessing this. So um, in the aftermath, uh, there was a big public outcry, you know, about the, about the police violence and the, you know, all the, the newspapers and the media were filled with all these ghastly pictures of the police violence and people's, people whose faces had been bloodied by the police nightsticks. And there was a big public outcry and even the local community board, community board three, which had sort of been going along with the curfew before the riot. After the riot, they say, no, we weren't properly consulted. This violates the city charter. So um, the city was forced to take a step back and the curfew was rescinded and the park stayed open 24 seven and the homeless encampment stayed. And it was initially a real victory. And this was the beginning of the, uh, the three years that I call the class war period on the, on the Lower East Side when there was really a local uprising going on against, mm -hmm. the, um, against the gentrification and lots of really angry riots, angry protests and riots for a period of around three years from 1988. At the time we called it the Lower East Side Intifada. Lower East Side, <laughs> of course, is you know, the, the Latinoization of Lower East Side when the Puerto Ricans started moving into the neighborhood in the mm -hmm. 50s, they started calling the neighborhood the Lower East Side. And, uh, you know, the Intifada, of course, is a reference to the Palestinian uprising, which was happening. Mm -hmm. The first the first Intifada uh, was happening in Palestine at the same time, late 1980s. So we called it the Lower East Side, the Intifada. And inevitably, the riots would begin in one of two ways. Either uh, the police would try to evict the homeless encampment from uh, Tompkins Square, and the anarchists would rally to the scene to defend the homeless encampment, and it would turn into a riot. Or at least twice a year, every May Day and every Memorial Day, there would be a big um, squatter festival happening in the park with punk rock bands playing and people making speeches against the curfew and the gentrification. And, and inevitably, at a certain point, the police would say, OK, time's up. Sound permits expired. They will pull the plug on the sound system in the middle of a song, cut off the band, storm the stage, get everybody pissed off and start a riot. And this happened over and over and over again. And every time the fighting would spill out onto Avenue A and uh, people would set garbage cans on fire and throw rocks and bottles and bricks at the police. Um, until finally came the last Tompkins Square Park riot. Maybe there'll be other ones in the future. It's kind of hard to believe, but the last Tompkins Square Park <laughs> riot so far was uh, Memorial Day 1991, where um, once again, there was a, um, a squatter festival happening in the park. It turned into a riot. The fighting spilled out onto Avenue 8. And on that day, something really bad happened. It could have been the work of paid police agents. We don't know. But it, there was a lot of speculation to that effect. But in any event, a, um, a convenience store on Avenue A was looted. Just an ordinary, unassuming convenience store run by Pakistani immigrants. Not even like some kind of upscale yuppie restaurant or boutique that you could sort of consider a legitimate target <clears throat> was had its windows broken and was, uh, was ransacked and looted. 
So, um, and after that, the uh, administration of the new mayor, David Dinkins, who had been elected as a progressive, saying he was going to help the homeless, but really never did very much, said, um, okay, enough is enough. The park is closed for renovations. So um, the park was, uh, the police cleared everybody out of the park. They built this big 20-foot fence around the park. The bulldozers moved in. Again, Community Board 3 went to court to try to get an injunction to stop the bulldozers and, um, and get the park back open. Um, <clears throat> but uh, the judge found that it was an emergency, again, saying, you know, they, the Community Board argued that it violated the city charter because all this had been done unilaterally by, by, you know, fiat of the mayor's office without consulting the Community Board. So they said this violates the city charter. But the judge found that it was an emergency situation, wouldn't give them an injunction. So the bulldozers moved in. The park was closed for um, for two years. For two summers, we did not have a park on the Lower East Side. Wow! And uh, during those two, during those two summers, during those two years that the park was closed, the protest movement in the neighborhood did not have a gathering place, mm -hmm. and that proved to be critical. Particularly back before social media and so on, that proved to be critical, and uh, we were just destroyed. The protest movement was gutted. It was just broken during those two years. And in the immediate aftermath, you know, when the park was reopened in 93, the curfew was enforced. It's actually a midnight curfew, an hour earlier than the original curfew, just assault in our wounds. And the community board went along with it this time. And uh, in the years after that, the gentrification just swept like a wave with very little resistance um, from, uh, from west to east. Now it reaches all the way over to Avenue D. On the other side of Avenue D, you've got the public housing projects that were built back in the 1950s, which I believe, you know, I believe built back in the 50s. Um, that's really the last solid bastion of, um, of uh, you know, working class housing um, in, in the neighborhood. Um, <clears throat> so, um, and I was during this whole period that the, uh, that the, the Intifada, the Louis Side of Intifada was going on, um, I was covering this whole scene as a as a reporter for a local um, a local uh, neighborhood weekly called Downtown, now defunct. Um, uh -huh. So I was one of the people in the neighborhood who began to do the historical research and found out that uh, this was actually a cycle, the very first uh, historical cycle going all the way back to 18, the 1850s. The very first Tompkins Square Park riot was in 1857 when um, the shipbuilding industry along the East River waterfront where East River Park and those housing projects are today, back then there was a, um, a shipbuilding industry and everybody uh, who, was, um, who lived in the neighborhood at that time, mostly Irish and German immigrants, uh, the, everybody in the neighborhood was employed in the shipbuilding industry. And um, in 1857, there was a stock market crash. The shipbuilding industry was shut down overnight. Thousands of people were thrown out of work and there was a big spontaneous um, gathering in Tompkins Square Park to demand some kind of relief program for the unemployed. It was attacked by the police and the state militia, and that became the very first Tompkins Square Park riot way back in 1857. And in the immediate aftermath, the, uh, the city closed the park for renovations. Ah, okay. <laughs> so it, it was a cycle going all it was the way a known back. tactic. The, all the way back to 1857, and this continued the Civil War draft riots, uh, once again, the same cycle continued, and then there was another big uh, Tompkins Square Park riot in 1874, when history repeated itself, the, uh, the Civil War draft riots in 1863. After that, the park was actually destroyed, and it became a drill ground for the state militia, and the neighborhood was really under, um, 
under military occupation for a period of several years. Then finally, uh, it was planted with trees again and turned back into a park due to uh, community pressure. And then you had 1874, history repeated itself. The stock market crashed again. The shipbuilding industry was shut down again. And there was another Togman Square Park riot. That was the end of the shipbuilding industry. It never recovered after that. And uh, then we jump forward um, nearly a century to um, eight, uh, 1967, when there was the, uh, the, uh, the hippie riot, so to speak, in Tompkins Square Park. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's this, this whole historical cycle, which you can hear all about on my tour, which I do every Saturday <laughs> and Sunday at the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space. So, so can um, I just, uh, I want to just make a connection here, just make sure I understand. So you were writing for the Neighborhood Weekly and it was called Downtown. Correct. And you wrote about the Loisida Intifada for that paper? Correct. Okay. And then that those those two years that the park was closed and effectively like shutting down the meeting space and sort of gentrification's really like digging its teeth into the neighborhood. Were you also covering that in the paper? Well, uh, initially, yes. Certainly the whole um, the whole, you know, climactic showdown when uh, <clears throat> when the park was ordered closed and we were holding all these protests to try to get it back open. But um, shortly after that, the movement fizzled out and there was less to write about. And that was also at the same time that I started working for High Times and I sort of graduated from downtown to High Times. Uh, okay. So- um, I see, okay, got it. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so sorry. So then you were getting to your relationship with the museum. Ah, uh, yes, 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 yes. So I should say that, um, Okay, we, after we were dealt this big defeat with the closure of the park, uh, for a while, things were kind of dead on the Lower East Side in terms of activism. Things were really hopping on the Lower East Side in terms of gentrification <laughs> mm, mm -hmm. and art galleries opening and all that kind of thing. Um, but things were kind of dead in terms of activism um, until uh, the late 1990s when the city started aggressively going after the community gardens. Uh -huh. And there was, uh, you know, a, a lot of community gardens were destroyed, not just in the Lower East Side, but around the city. But the Lower East Side has the, uh, the largest um, concentration of um, community gardens in the city. There's something like 500 around the city, of which around 75 are on the Lower East Side. So, um, on, and, uh, you know, due to, um, all right, I should give some background on the community gardens. Uh, again, during this whole period of, uh, you know, urban blight, just like there were lots of um, empty buildings on the Lower East Side, which had been abandoned, there were also lots of empty lots around the Lower East Side in the 1970s, where buildings had actually come down. They had, they had either collapsed because nobody was doing any maintenance on them, and, you know, every winter they would deteriorate a little bit more and beams started to rot and so on. The buildings would actually collapse or... Um, Sometimes, you know, the buildings would be burnt down. There was a lot of landlord arson as an insurance scam, which was happening at this time. So uh, <clears throat> by the late 19, uh, mid to late 1970s, there were all these vacant lots around the Lower East Side. And initially it was the Puerto Rican residents who began reclaiming those vacant lots and, um, and turning them into community gardens. And it was largely due to their efforts that the, um, the green thumb program was launched where, uh, you know, they initially they started taking over these gardens spontaneously, started taking over these, these vacant lots 
and planting gardens spontaneously because this land had just been abandoned by the city. But then they realized that they had something that was worth protecting. And uh, they wanted these gardens to have some kind of official recognition from the city authorities. So they formed a uh, citywide organization called the Green Gorillas, the gardeners all across New York, formed a citywide organization called the Green Gorillas. That's gorilla, not G-O-R, like the animal, but a gorilla, mm -hmm. G-U-E-R, like a gorilla fighter. And they started petitioning the city government for these, um, these gardens to be protected. And initially, the city government was very skeptical and reluctant, as with the homesteading program. But eventually, the more progressive minds prevailed. And at least, again, on a limited experimental basis, the Green Thumb program was launched. And under the Green Thumb program, the city would acknowledge, yeah, there's a garden here. And at the end of it's not just a vacant lot. There's a garden here. And at the end of the process, once the um, city authorities had determined that they uh, didn't have any other plans for the site, and they were convinced that the, uh, the gardeners were, were serious about maintaining the garden in the long term, the land would be transferred from uh, HPD, Housing Preservation and Development, to the Parks Department. Once it's been transferred to the Parks Department, it's rezoned as green space. So um, it's, it, uh, it's no longer zoned for housing, it's zoned for open space. So the city can come along and say, okay, we need to build a housing development here. It's, it's zoned as green space. But um, again, there were a lot of gardens which continued to be guerrilla gardens, so to speak, and were not coming under the um, protection of the Green Thumb program. So under, uh, you know, the city was getting aggressively gentrified under uh, mayors uh, Giuliani and Bloomberg, all of the community gardens, which were not in the Green Thumb program, which meant the majority of them were going to be destroyed. The city was going to build on top of every one of them. And a lot of them were destroyed. And there was a lot of public outcry about this. Eventually, there was a um, citywide activist campaign to save the community gardens. Eventually, enough pressure was brought that the city came to the negotiating table. There were two big um, deals that were worked out, both of them brokered by then State Attorney General Elliot Spitzer. For one of the deals, the singer Bette Midler put up a lot of money, which she donated <laughs> to the city in lieu of the tax revenue the city would get from putting up housing developments on these sites. And um, essentially what happened is that the Green Thumb program was expanded to incorporate most of the remaining guerrilla gardens. So um, most of the gardens which survived that wave of garden destruction about 15 years ago are now safe. There's still a few around the neighborhood and around the city which are threatened and we're gonna have to fight for, but it isn't like it was 15 years ago and they're massively threatened. We by and large won the fight. And during, the, um, during that period in the late 90s, early 2000s, when uh, you know activism was re-emerging on the Lower East Side around the Trump struggle to save the community gardens, uh, you know again it was kind of uh, you know an anarchist-informed movement, but it was more um, utopian-spirited. Um, it was less nihilist. It was less violent. It was explicitly non-violent, and they were using tactics of civil disobedience, particularly tactics of civil disobedience, which are directly inspired by the radical environmentalists out west who were trying to save the old growth forests in, um, in the Rockies and the Redwoods and so on, who would actually you know, um, lock down to the logging roads. Uh, the, 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 what the, uh, <clears throat> the activists would do is uh, particularly in the uh, struggle to save the Esperanza Garden, the former site of which is on my tour on 7th Street, they actually took big U-locks. You know what a U-lock is? That lock in the shape of a U, it's usually used uh -huh. to lock bicycles. They took big uh -huh. U-locks, they locked their necks to the trees so the police had to come in with bolt cutters and and blow torches to pry them loose and drag them off to jail. This was in uh, February of the year 2000. And uh, 
That's what happened. The police came in and fried them loose and dragged them off to jail. The bulldozers moved in. The garden was destroyed. But um, the fact that the um, that the the the, uh, the activists ruling to lock down with these various devices which they had improvised, the locked locked down to the to the trees and the fences in the garden, that won a lot of very favorable media coverage for the uh, the struggle to save the community gardens. And it was immediately after that that the um, that the city government was sort of shamed into coming to the negotiating table and the first of the deals were cut, whereby most of the remaining gardens were saved. So we lost that garden, but I don't think the fight was in vain. I think it's because of the struggle that we waged at the Esperanza Garden on 7th Street uh, that uh, a lot of other gardens were saved. And it's kind of like we lost that battle, but in the end, it helped us to win the war. Uh, then, uh, you know, the neighborhood, you know, the, even though the gar a, lot, a lot of the gardens were saved, a lot of them were destroyed, but a lot of them were saved. But certainly the, um, the neighborhood got uh, very much more, uh, you know, <clears throat> gentrified uh, in, the, in the following years. And uh, there was a sense that, you know, all of this history, the whole struggle over Tompkins Square Park, the struggle to save the community gardens, you know, the whole reclaiming of urban space by gardeners and homesteaders and squatters, all of this history was kind of being forgotten. And all these mm -hmm. newcomers uh, in the neighborhood, all these, you know, young white yuppies were moving into the neighborhood, had no idea that any of this had even happened. So um, what year would it have been? It would have been 2012, we uh, launched the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space. Okay. Some of the, the key figures, I was among the founders. I wasn't the core group that came together. I was among the founders. The core group were um, some people, uh, particularly Bill DePala from uh, the group Time's Up, which okay. was a kind of like a, a radical bicycling group. They were the group which was, they would object to me saying that they organized the critical mass rides because they would claim that there were no organizers. <laughs> that it was just a, a sort of an, 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 an organized coincidence as they call it. You know, the critical mass rides, which when, um, uh, <clears throat> the city was taking certain measures to restrain bicyclists they, uh, they started riding, uh, I believe it was what, the last Friday of every month, they started riding in mass um, in, the, um, in, in the streets of New York as, you know, as bicyclists and actually taking over the street and saying, you know, we have the right to do this. You can't say we're blocking traffic. We are traffic. Bicycles have as much of a right to the road as, um, as cars do. So it, let, let's say that at least some of the people who were very um, uh, involved, I won't say organized, but involved, the critical ma involved in the critical mass rides around this um, group called Time's Up. Today, the, the whole phrase has been taken up by the whole uh, movement against um, sexual harassment. But uh, mm -hmm. Time's Up was using it in the sense of Time's Up for automobiles, Time's Up for the fossil fuel industry, and so on, going uh, you know 20 or even 30 years ago. So some of those same people were involved in, who were also squatters themselves, were involved in, um, in uh, launching the museum to try to you know, keep this history alive and let people know that you know, there was all of this land which was reclaimed by squatters and gardeners and homesteaders by the sweat of their brows uh, on the Lower East Side. And that there was this whole struggle to, uh, you know, to keep the park open when the city you know, started imposing curfews and et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, and there is, there are, the, the museum, I will be frank about this, the museum has its critics because there are people in the neighborhood who feel that it's sort of, you know, it's encouraging tourism. It's kind of commercializing the radical history of the neighborhood. And uh, 
and it's kind of you know encouraging you know the commodification of the neighborhood's authentic culture and it's kind of itself uh, you know kind of a um uh you know a harbinger of gentrification and i am open to this critique i acknowledge this critique um but i think that has to be weighed against the social good that it's doing and the positive the positive good that it's doing in terms of preserving the the history it's impossible to be pure under capitalism okay mm -hmm. so uh, and you know like i said you know the squatters themselves who's you know way back in the 1980s who you know thought that they were resisting gentrification and in fact were resisting gentrification for all they were worth you know actually you know launching a a, 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 a violent uprising <laughs> to stop mm -hmm. the gentrification <laughs> um they themselves can be seen, you know, not all of the squatters were white by any means, but, you know, a big plurality of them, at least, like I say, were the first young white pioneers who were like the first white people to start moving back into the neighborhood, which had become a heavily, you know, almost entirely Latino neighborhood by that point. So, uh, you know, and, and they were the ones, a lot of the squatters were themselves, you know, artists. They made the neighborhood fashionable for artists and you know, eventually the mm. radical chic artists like the, like the squatters gave way in the 1990s, as the neighborhood started to get gentrified to the more bourgeois chic artists who started opening art galleries and so on. And then eventually, you know, the, in the gentrification process, the cycle of gentrification, the artists themselves were, you know, um, pushed out by, by the yuppies and the bankers. And <laughs> so, uh, you know, you could, you could see the, uh, the um, there's this term which is used early gentrifiers. Well, I feel that term is somewhat abused. I don't think you can call the squatters gentrifiers because you know they weren't gentry. They weren't um, you know they 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 weren't uh, you're living in in um, in condominiums. They were reclaiming right. abandoned buildings, so they weren't gentry. But they, right. you could sort of see them as you know the the early harbingers of gentrification. So you know uh, if you understand your Hegel, you will understand that the um, uh, you know the historical process goes forward through a, um, uh, through a, you know, contradiction. It's impossible to be pure under, under capitalism. Everything entails, um, entails uh, you know, a, a dialectical process of contradiction. And the museum is a part of that. I readily acknowledge it. So, um, I, you know, I understand the, uh, the critique of the museum and I accept it, but I also think that on balance, it's, um, uh, it, it's, it, it's playing a positive social role. Thank you. Okay, so my last, I was trying to figure out how to not end on a bummer. So I'm, I'm going to phrase this question perhaps awkwardly, but like what keeps you in the struggle and what keeps you going? Because you've been at this for a long time um, and engaged with a lot of different issues and a, a lot of different modes of, of doing that. So like what this perhaps is my own like <laughs> COVID fatigue, political fatigue. fatigue yeah, believe me. <laughs> well, um, in one sense, uh, you know, a, um, like I said, I uh, I really feel that you know if um, <clears throat> if capitalism is not overthrown, I really believe that the human race is doomed. I believe that there's no 
future for, you know, there's no decent future for humanity under capitalism in the long run. And, uh, you know, every community garden that we lose, just like every, you know, square mile of rainforest that we lose in, um, in, in Brazil, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, one more nail in the coffin of the planet, of the, of the mm -hmm. planetary biosphere, <clears throat> so to speak. And uh, it's bringing us one step closer, even if it's only a very, very small step, it's bringing us one step closer to, um, you know, ecological apocalypse. And, you know, it's one more um, generation of kids in the local community who are going to be growing up without a community garden and growing up without that ecological sensitivity, which is, you know, the only hope ultimately for survival of the human race on this planet. So first and foremost, a sense of responsibility. And I don't mm -hmm. want to, um, I don't want to portray myself as, you know, oh, I'm the, uh, the dedicated activist martyr here because uh, <clears throat> it's, I mean, I suppose in a certain sense, it's a, um, you know, there's been a certain sense of sacrifice in terms of my career. If I was, you know, writing about things uh, that there was more popular interest in than, you know, um, indigenous struggles in South America, for instance. And if I wasn't such a crank who continued to call out the, uh, who continued to call out, you know, the, the left-wing establishment on its bad politics. Here's the damn phone again. Bear, bear with me, bear with me. Okay. I remember where I was. You can edit this out later, I suppose, right? No, it's, like I said, it's ambiance. Okay, right, ambiance, <laughs> authenticity, yes. Okay, if it wasn't for all that, I suppose that my, um, you know, I could be more advanced in my career than I am. But, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm actually pretty uh, happy in my career, to tell you the truth. I'm actually making a living as a writer, writing about stuff that I want to write about, writing about cannabis legalization, another aspect of uh, my whole career that we haven't even, an activist life that we haven't even touched on. <clears throat> Um, and writing about ecological issues and so on, and writing about indigenous struggles in South America. Um, another aspect we didn't touch on is all the work that I've done in South America over the past uh, 20 years or so, and my struggle to finish the book, which I've been struggling to finish for the past 20 years. <laughs> mm. <laughs> life has intervened. But um, in any event, you know, I've parlayed it into a career, not a spectacularly successful career, but a, a modest career. I no longer have to sell my... Um, sell my labor as a proofreader or a copy editor as I did for many years. And um, it's a good thing that I don't have to because um, that work is no longer available. A part of the whole contraction of the industry is that uh, you know um, the newspapers and websites and whatnot are no longer employing copy editors and proofreaders, which is itself something which fills me with despair. But um, so yeah, you know, again, there's this criticism as with doing the tours that, you know, Maybe I'm being careerist, but um, whatever. All told, I'd rather be um, making a modest living doing something which is um, socially useful than making a uh, more um, remunerative living doing something which is not socially useful. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, more to the point is that, uh, and this you know goes back to that you know that that question that you asked me about wh whether I was drawn 
to this whole scene over the issues or over, you know, over the people and then the scene. And I find it's impossible to, uh, to separate them. I mean, mm -hmm. not only do I support the community gardens, because I feel that, you know, uh, you know, in, 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 in an intellectual and in a political sense, it's, you know, it's morally, ethically imperative to do so, but also because I enjoy the community gardens and I enjoy the whole scene around them. And it means something to me that, you know, there's actually, you know, a place in the neighborhood where I can go where there are, uh, you know, mm. flowers and butterflies and fresh air and, you know, and, and a, a sense of community where people, you know, can hang out and, you know, it, 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 it means something to my, I really, it's a word that I really hate, a term that I really hate because it was really um, co-opted during the gentrification in the Giuliani years, but it uh -huh. means something to my <clears throat> quality of ah. life. <laughs> yeah. But to me, quality of life doesn't mean being, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, protected by the police and by um, security cameras and in a um, in a uh, you know a spit shined um, uh, you know uh, yuppie condominium, which is what the term came to mean. <laughs> to me, right. it means something. It means organic, authentic culture and trees and flowers, <laughs> and and a, and a sense of authentic community in the neighborhood where I live. <clears throat> cool. Thank you. That is the perfect place to end. Okay, thank you very much, Kimberly Springer. This has been uh, The Counter Vortex with your host, Bill Weinberg, being interviewed by Kimberly Springer of the Oral History Archives at Columbia University, a sneak preview airing on The Counter Vortex podcast. This is The Counter Vortex podcast, which we do every week. You can check us out online at countervortex.org, where we blog every day. You can support us on Patreon, join The Counter Vortex, Join the resistance and rant on you next time.